Business as Unusual is a thought-provoking podcast that explores the innovative strategies, disruptive ideas, and unconventional practices driving successful leaders and companies in the ever-evolving world of modern business. Subscribe, comment, and share for weekly inspiration with our host, Aisela. Hi, welcome to Business is Unusual. This is Aisla, and I'm here today with Amina Chowdhury. Nice to see you today. Nice to see you as well. Thank you but, for having me. You know, I am so excited to be doing this with you. I've been engaging with Amina off and on for several months, and we're really looking forward to have her kick off season three. So I appreciate you being the uh, first person for season three to set the tone. Thank you for having me. Oh, and before we hop in to the nitty-gritty of the amazing work that you're doing. What's the last artist that you got lost in? I have been looking at a lot of political cartoonists and satire, satirists, I think is what you call them. I'm not going to pronounce that name right now, that word right at the moment. Uh, political cartoonists. Um, and the one that I have been looking at a lot and kind of been lost in his work and I wish his work was all in one place somewhere but I haven't found a place his name is Ali Farzad he's Syrian and he has a lot of like really poignant um, imagery of what it's like what uh, imagery of oppression of governmental systemic oppression there was one that really caught my eye the other day and it's a picture of a gun so it's a drawing of a gun and you see just like a hand that has pulled the trigger, but the gun, the trigger is a blade. And so pulling the trigger, the finger has cut off on front and separated from the hand. And um, I just found that to be quite, I don't know, provocative is the right word, but you know how they say a picture is a thousand words. And when you have these political cartoonists drawing and trying to depict reality and that is like the best vision of visual of how you can't hurt or hurt others without hurting yourself. It reminded yeah. me of a quote by an indigenous chief. And I think it's something to the effect of what is it? What is the saying? It's we don't create our web of life we are just a thread like man does not weave the web of life we're just a thread or a strand of it and anything that we do to the web we do to ourselves and so this idea of like interconnectedness so i just found that one image of his kind of like it hit me it took me a while i just looked at it for a while i was like i don't understand it. i don't get it and it took me mm -hmm. a while to see that the finger yeah. was severed that there was a blade in the trigger so i just thought that was interesting our relationship to violence and safety and how we think that violence is going to bring safety. Mm. Yeah, it's a very lizard brain response. And I work with an indigenous woman who the sort of adage that she functions in is whatever I do for another, I do for myself. Whatever I do yeah. to another, I do to myself. And yes. it's a pretty powerful way to, to walk through life. And to feel, like you said, that sense of interconnectedness, that sense of community, that reality that the idea that we're separate is in itself a bit of a deception. And it leads to some harmful, super harmful thing. And which is part of why you have the business you have. Such a great segue. So what is your business? A little bit about like a, you know, the name, what your type of work is, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm a nice yeah, thank you. I'm a DEI strategist, consultant, and coach, and I work with leaders who are hungry for systemic change um, and who are aware and attuned to the gap that exists between their intentions, their good intentions, and their actual impact, you know, and are looking to figure out how to fix and figure out how to bridge that knowing, doing gap. And I also work, so I work with leaders one-on-one. -on -one coaching. I tell, I tell people coaching is transformative. Consulting is transformative, low, slow pace. Eventually, depending on how you do it, 
but coaching is is transformative. And frankly speaking, our leadership in the U.S. in whatever sector you look at um, comes from a lived experience that is incredibly insulated from racial stress. And because the bulk of C-suite executive leadership is cishet white male, and um, there is a very significant lived experience gap for that demographic. And I think that as we saw with, there's also, there's lived experience gap for that identity in leadership, but there's also a gap for anyone who makes it to a position of power. And that gap tends to be, you make it to these leadership roles by, not by changing systems, but by proving that you know how to keep systems in place. Mm-hmm. That you have how the importance of that, that you have the skill to do that, that you know how to be savvy and what's the word, implicit and not a word about it. Think about Joe Biden as a really good example. If you look back 20, 30 years and you listen to him on the floor of the Senate and you listen to him talk today or as the VP for Obama, you can see that he went through the learning curve of realizing how he needs to be nuanced about upholding systems and not overt for him to make it to positions of power. And he is a more exaggerated example of how leadership trajectory is just that system is just set up in the U.S. And businesses are just a microcosm of the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. And I work with leaders who understand and have an idea that there's this gap that they experience and one-on-one coaching is a phenomenal way for them to really accelerate their ability to build muscles that they currently did not, were not encouraged to build um, so that they can influence their spaces and figure out how to systemically produce systems in their spheres of influence where belonging can become the norm. Because right now, belonging is not the norm. Exclusion is. What does success look like to you? Say success looks like, and this is, I suppose, both an answer for me and a what successful partnerships look like for me when I'm working with clients, whether it's an organization or just a sole leader. People with more humility, if we are able to actualize and operationalize more humility, we're always, we're all always learning. I know the rhetoric in leadership tends to continuous learning, gross mindset, but leaders often don't actually demonstrate active learning. It tends to be, learning tends to be a professed value. Mm-hmm. And to me, learning is the act of changing, right? The willingness to come to spaces to change. And so I think success for me looks like when people grasp that in a very real way, Mm -hmm. right? When they can practice change, when they can practice humility. And, And often that looks like moving from a place of having the answers to asking unusual questions. Really? Not the usual business as usual questions that everybody gets praised for, but like asking the questions that often people are thinking of no one's, everyone's afraid of saying them out loud. Um, and asking or they questions. they think it's unchangeable. I feel like that's the other thing mm-hmm. is that people are, they think it's like the weather. It's just, it's happening. That mm. it's somehow mystically occurring instead of questioning, why is this like mm-hmm. this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It tends to be like the higher up in an organization you are, the more you view that things like that, like culture, like as weather, unchangeable. But I think, yeah. But I think that like, when you look at people in labor, I feel like that, that, that little, that demographic of employees experiences it differently. They do see it as changeable because they experience the consequences of it. They know that things can be done differently so that their life, they can have more access to ease and joy. So maybe that's what success. Okay, so here's how I'll answer your question really succinctly. Success to me looks like a world where access to joy and ease um, is more equitable for the marginalized, for BIPOCs. So if I look at the U.S. system, 
if I was able to coach and consult with every single sector and every single business, and if you thought about like widespread change, that would look like black and brown, black and indigenous people being able to access ease and joy as equally as a white person, a middle-class white person, let's say. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm generalizing, but like that, that, that is, that is the accurate factual generalization. I spoke at a conference last week and one of the things that um, someone brought up in a question and answer section was the fact that their volunteer organization has a fee that volunteers pay to be able to volunteer and how it's inequitable and they've tried to work on getting rid of the fee, but there's resistance to getting rid of it because that fee is like, has performed certain functions. And I had asked the person, like, what is inequitable about having a fee? And she's like, it's like white women who have disposable income and also the time that they can lend are the ones who keep showing up for volunteering and we don't get the whole we want a more diverse pool of volunteers. And so that just shows the inequity right there. That's it. That's where like when you put a price on volunteerism, Generally speaking, they're not able to recruit people from marginalized uh, mm. socio- socioeconomic demographic. And so success looks to me where there's equity between the ability of Black and brown people to access ease and joy. I had the privilege of attending your workshops, The Art of Interrupting Racism. And you talk about this concept of operationalizing belonging. And we have an epidemic of suicide in our country, but children are one of the highest uh, demographics that for increasing in suicide. Isolation is considered to be a contributing factor to the mass shootings that we're dealing with and maybe ease of access to guns is part of it, but we'll go with isolation too. And one of the things that I see as being really different if there is more of this understanding of how to interrupt this isolation and how to increase belonging and to really create opportunities for people to have that as part of an expectation that there are so many things that would change. And, and if people, if leaders and people in privileged positions and white people all understand the ways that they can bridge that gap between intention and action and really understand that the ways in which they can do this, we can do this in a more consistent way. What would the world be like if everyone felt that sense of belonging? How would it feel to go to the store and not be stressed out about the, the ways in which people can lose their shit so easily because they're so under siege? And how would it be to be in a job where you didn't feel constantly aware of the ways in which you were in minority and instead could just focus on the work you're doing? Even if you don't love what you're doing, there's some satisfaction in doing a job well. And to be able to fully get yourself into that space and be there and do that, what would the world be like if that was how we all lived? I think it'd be pretty great. Yeah. One of the ways I work with clients is I have a coaching package or a program that I have designed for BIPOC queer and trans identities. And it's specifically designed to help people who share my identities and lived experiences to survive systemic oppression in the workplace. And I use the word survive instead of thrive very specifically because I don't think you can thrive until the system, the environment changes. But there are ways to survive it that are low cost versus high cost, right? So there are low cost ways of surviving systems. And we get thrown into from high school to university life or college life to into workplaces. And along that way, I think there's an understanding that students need to need access to particular kind of professional development opportunities and mentoring and coaching opportunities to be able to like build their leadership skills and succeed and develop their careers in the workplace. But the gap for me that I see is that if you hold a particular identity, you are navigating systems that were not built with your success in mind. And they're not just not built with your success in mind. They actually have legit obstacles to you succeeding. 
And so there's a particular kind of professional development you need when you are a marg- when you belong to a marginalized socioeconomic demographic to be able to survive educational spaces, but also like the workplace, right? And when I am working with those clients and when I'm talking to people in general and I'm networking, that's common. Most people don't feel they can bring their full selves to work. Right. right? So one of the one of the things I help by my clients to realize is that you can't take the, I don't know, professional development advice that your Brene Browns dish mm-hmm. out yeah. to the general public. You can't take that advice at face value and literally follow it. You, It has to be translated for your particular identity because a telling a Black person or a Muslim, brown Muslim person to show up as your full authentic self mm-hmm. like is going to get you fired. It's going to ostracize you. You are going to be seen as a you're, you're as somebody who doesn't fit in. And so there are fitting ins that you have to do and that are not are harmful, right? There are, there are harmful ways of acclimating to the business and the workplace. But but there are ways to figure out how to fit in in ways that you're actually holding the system also accountable. So I teach black and brown employees how to leverage um, language and norms that are valued in the workplace to actually support your ability to bring as much as yourself as you possibly can to the workplace. So that is common. I agree with you. That's a common complaint that people don't feel that they can bring their full selves to work. And what I'll say is one of those reasons actually is is the economy of the U.S., which the workplace is a ma- massive a part of, right? Whether you are in the government sector or the higher education or the corporate sector or the nonprofit sector, right? You're part of the economy. The roots of the economy in the U.S., the taproot, is genocide and slavery, right? It's land theft and labor theft, and so there are legacies of slavery built into how we do business and how workplaces are set up. And so just at that level, pretty right, much right. everyone, you'll see white women complaining about how they can bring their full selves to work. Right. And I think like all that I'd say is like what I, what I tell leaders is that even leadership in workplaces understands this because there is so much emphasis and focus that they try to put on pretending to be family or in the higher education right. realm. They tend to want to be, or in the nonprofit as well, they want to be community um, because they know that the actual experience is the opposite. So they understand that they, they need to do something. And unfortunately, the sad thing is what they do is very superficial fixes and it doesn't actually fix the culture and the experience. But there is, I think, an agreed upon understanding that the workplace is not a place um, where belonging is the norm. Yeah. And it's not the norm in the society in general, to your point. You've talked a little bit about it. Can you give a summary maybe of what you consider to be unusual about what you do? Oh, summary of business as unusual. Yes. DEI has had a, DEI landscape has been a changing landscape since the 50s. DEI started in the U.S. as racial sensitivity trainings that the military had started. And through several iterations of backlash from predominantly white, uh, that work went from racial sensitivity training to what it looks like right now is really honestly compliance-oriented work. It Mm -hmm. went through some more changes. It's compliance-related work. It's work that employers do so they don't get in trouble, so that they can reduce losses, so that they can cover their ass. There's a checklist of things they want to do to make sure that they are remaining EEOC compliant. And all well, that work has never been effective, I'll say. Mm-hmm. But recently in the aftermath of George Floyd's, I would say in the aftermath of actually Ferguson and George Floyd, it's become even more apparent that it is failing. Yeah. I read somewhere the other day, I think Global Consulting posted an article where $8 billion is what got spent on implicit bias trainings, Aisha. Wow. $8 billion. And I'm just like, that's a lot of money for no change. Yeah. For zero, zero impact on the black and brown employee experience. Mm-hmm. You look at that input 
And then you look at uh, reports like the Hue report, H-U-E, I mean, 2023, and you look at the disparities and the inequities and what Black and brown people actually say about their experience in the workplace. Um, the bulk of Black employees don't want to return to the workplace after having worked remotely because right. they just are not willing to put themselves back into white spaces where they're having to deal with um, aggression and discrimination on a daily basis. I won't say microaggression because there's nothing micro about the experience. Right. And I think DEI, as usual, has never worked. And it is particularly now glaringly failing and employers feel that. So like in the aftermath of George Floyd, there was this uptick of hiring DEI directors and hiring chief diversity officers and this energy of like, we have to be part of the movement of not creating environments where this is okay. It was a little bit like um, FOMO. Be, it was like their fear of being left out. As it was a FOMO. To like address this real issue of the ways that it impacts. And they, there wasn't a business case. And that's the thing that like, I just looking at how business works in our country and a lot of places, but if businesses don't have a business case, if they don't have a clear investment and an understanding as to why they're doing this and how it legitimately will help them do their business better, it's generally more of a cosmetic or compliance oriented, like you noted, as opposed to being a real investment in how they're going to do business and the way that it's going to create the result that they're looking for. So they're not about, they don't know what the result is. They don't know how it applies to what they're trying to accomplish. So there's two things that you're saying that I hear you saying. I, the first thing that I hear you saying is that they didn't know why they were doing what they were doing. There wasn't intentional effort put into figuring out their why. And when you don't put intentional effort in deciding why you're doing a particular kind of work, you'll end up doing it. You'll end up doing it for the reason that everybody else is doing it. And which was optics. Yeah. It was looking good. It was for optics. It was still superficial work. And the second thing I hear you saying is that it's not done in a way where organizations measure. They don't forget measuring outcomes or met, having metrics for it, they don't even identify the outcome that they want to achieve. Very vaguely, the outcome gets identified as increasing diversity. Very vaguely. And so what's unusual about the way I do DEI, I think this is rare among DEI professionals. I help employers collect or review the data that they have currently. And then data is only as good as the person who looks at it, right? Mm -hmm. Who can, if you think of data as Lego blocks, let's say, and you have a massive pile of data in all different colors, if you have, if your lived experience is creating colorblindness, you're not going to see the colors and specs in that pile of data that other people are going to see. And when you go to organize that data, you're going to put blues and reds together. And I don't know if that's true, if that's how colorblindness works, but you're going to clump colors together that look just the same to you right? Um, you're not going to know how to de-aggregate the data in a way that someone like I would be able to help you with. And, so, and then if you go one step forward, those blocks can be put together to form a house. They can be put together to form a boat. They can be put together to form, I don't know, a city. And so data is only as good as the person whose lens who is looking at it. And so I help organizations start with working with some sort of data, some sort of assessment. So sometimes that looks like collecting data. Sometimes that looks like doing an assessment and collecting data in the assessment process. I help them collect data, help them make sense of it and form some sort of a rough strategy of how they want to accomplish different outcomes, get them to articulate outcomes that they want to achieve, and then reverse engineer tactics that they can experiment with to try to achieve those outcomes and be very clear like what metrics they're going to use in uh, for measuring their success. So one of the things, one of the fails in the past few years has been because you because employers and businesses will not do this work in a very intentional operational way and they are just going along with the trend. I wanted to say most most businesses didn't actually articulate uh, how they would measure success. They just put a lot of money into hiring these roles that now they're eliminating and getting rid of and budgets that they are now eliminating and getting rid of. And so when you don't intentionally name the metric you're going to use 
to determine whether you're succeeding with your initiative, you're going to default to the one that feels right to you. Mm -hmm. And what metric ends up being used? Absence of conflict. Mm -hmm. And so the when they see that actually conflict arises when you try to start with psychological safety trainings, right? Or uh, there was no change in their employee engagement surveys pre and post a CDO, for example. You just end up defaulting to those things being your metrics. And those are not good metrics. They're not good KPIs for any initiative, let alone DEI. And I think what I help employers do and what I help employer organizations and leaders do is very intentionally figure out what is their purpose, their anchor for this work? What data are you going to use to guide your strategy so that the outcomes that you're achieving are actually meeting the needs of the employees that you're wanting to retain, right? That they're aligned with employee needs. They're aligned with the needs, the kind of culture that your employees actually want and and need to thrive in the kind of culture you need to create so that the diversity that you want to recruit is going to actually thrive in your culture versus struggle in your culture. And I don't deliver one-off trainings and (laughs) workshops. After we build a strategy, we collect data and we build a strategy that part of strategy and tactics, trainings become part of that. And when we do trainings, I always have a blended approach to learning. And so there is traditional training mixed with action learning activities. So Mm -hmm. ways that managers and supervisors and leadership can actually put into action what they're learning versus just keep increasing. Because the current trainings, all it does is it just keeps increasing what you know, the word you use when you talk about it. Right. And your information. And I what I tell people what I tell people is like what that does to you is it just makes you carry a sack on your back. And you're just stuffing cotton into it, more and more cotton. And cotton is pretty light. So you can stuff a lot in a sack on your back and walk just fine. But when you got to cross a river and that dips in water, it gets really heavy and you can't move. And so I am a believer that the more you know is not better. Yeah, it's like a recipe, right? Like a recipe is not the food. So like I give you a recipe, mm-hmm. you'd be like, oh, cool. I like this, but you're not going to eat it. It's it, then I think that's what I think of a lot of knowledge is it's it's not that it can't get you somewhere, but there's a the space we have to act. And then when you're acting, you learn, oh, I have or don't have certain ingredients and I don't have a substitute. Well, and all those pieces. It's like when I first got into knitting, I was obsessed with yarn and the kinds of yarn and how it felt. And I hoarded a ton of yarn in the beginning when I started, when I had started mm-hmm. like learning to knit. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to knit all this shit. It's so fun. Yeah. It was pretty yeah. on the wall in the like arranging the bookshelves. Yeah. But you know, if you actually don't learn to knit, if you don't actually buy knitting needles or and good ones, right? And you don't learn new techniques for how to knit socks. Uh, in the circular method versus on yeah. the straight uh, needles. If you, don't, if you don't learn different ways to make that yarn into actually usable items, it sits there looking pretty and it actually becomes very hard to, it just becomes something that collects dust. It's a burden. It and becomes a burden. Many, yeah, it's a big burden. It's money that is invested in something that is just sitting there stagnant. That's the exact same thing I feel like how biz- DI as usual is actually functioning at the moment. Yeah. Is that it increases leadership and employees' language base. They just talk more proficiently and talk to any BIPOC and they'll tell you how annoying and frustrating it is to have that white ally who says everything right but does everything wrong. Is never there to support you when you need the support, but ha- will say everything perfectly, write the perfect I emails. bet they have great posts. Yeah. And isn't that the trend mm-hmm. that employers will like? will issue will issue like the perfect statements in the aftermath of a incident but 10 out of 10 times employees are always dissatisfied with that statement and i've had clients ask me like well they wanted us to say something and we said something and they got upset and like because the thing that you said they wanted you to do it first exactly they want to see action and words not action or word and this blows their minds they're like, why didn't they say it? And it blows my mind. Like, why do you, why is that not obvious? But so this is the, 
So one of the other ways that I do business other than usual is I will not do all staff trainings. I won't start by doing all staff trainings with your organization. I will work with only senior leadership first because it's the people who are driving the ship. The people who are the decision makers are the ones who have the control over deciding how many moves, right? What the budget, what budget lines look like. Those are the people who control an organization's health and direction. And they're the ones who actually need to increase their capacity for being inclusive before you start doing things with the rest of your organization. Mm-hmm. Oh. So what is DEI for me? DEI is culture change work. Mm-hmm. And culture change happens top down. Culture change never happens bottom up. Yeah. So I know that you have experiences in all of these different identities. You've experienced exclusion and There are a lot of people that have, right? They're definitely not the only one. And yet, for some reason, that inspired you specifically to educate yourself in some very deep ways and then go out and do a, to a certain extent, thankless task of helping people to understand how to operationalize this. So what created that inspiration for you? How did it go from, I experienced this, to I'm taking this action? I'm learning these things. What, is there a specific story or moment where you realize that you had something to offer that would be uh, useful in this? Or was it, does it more arise that you were doing the work and suddenly you realize like, well, I have, I've been doing this. Now maybe I should do it intentionally. Like, how did that come about? Such an interesting question. And it's very sweet of you to say, that this is a unique experience to mine. It's not unique to me. I feel like there's a lot of folks out there with marginalized identities who understand the importance of systems change, right? I assume every single person who has these identities, which I would, has these experiences, Mm -hmm. that the percentage of people that take action or understand how to, and I'm not saying that they're not interested. Like you, you have come up with a very unique and effective solution that that I've seen in action and the ways that it touches and changes people. And so how did that happen as opposed to the feeling like you didn't have a choice or because these are all understandable reactions. Let me be clear. I'm not saying anything that is yet that. It's more curious about what, what fostered that for you specifically. If I had to point to my lived experience and try to extract something here are two things i would say but before i say before i name those i'd also say is like i think my entire life has led me up to this like i have been chasing belonging all my life and um failed in so many environments for a really large for the bulk of my life right partially because the bulk of my life i've been a marginalized person without and not being in a position of power for example a student right you're not when you're going through your K through 12 education or even university life, you're not somebody who has a ton of power, positional power. And so when you experience and over and over again, when you experience putting in all you possibly can and still experiencing marginalization and oppression again and again, I think one thing that surfaces for you is what the thing that I think you that's a very experiential way of learning that uh, you're not the only ingredient mm-hmm. that you your you and your bootstraps are not the only ingredient mm-hmm. right? that the environment makes a big difference that people holding positional power are a large there they are a key ingredient and they need to change for there to be change overall one place i learned this i would think i remember i was in fourth grade or fifth grade we were assigned to read to kill a mockingbird and i grew up in canada by the way so this is canadian education system to kill a mockingbird was a book that was assigned my teacher was a white female and we were asked to do book reports uh, so the classroom actually wasn't all assigned to Kill a Mockingbird. There were different books and we were divvied up into groups. And me and two other Black students, the only other people of color. So the three of us were the only POCs in the room, uh, in the class. Everybody else was white. We were the only ones assigned to Kill a Mockingbird. I remember, I'm not going to remember the name titles of the other books, but I do remember like 
thinking, why did we get this book? Because it's the one book that white people like to think that it's about race, Mm -hmm. right? And I remember that I ended up writing the book report. So we didn't, it wasn't a group project. I remember writing, it was just that the three of us were assigned this one book. And so the idea was that like different people are going to write different book reports and you're going to get to see different perspectives. If I try to remember accurately, I think that was the objective. And five minutes into presenting my book report, she shut me down. She stopped me. She told me that this was that I didn't do the project right, that I failed the opportunity, and that she was disappointed. I'm trying to remember. I remember I getting an F and that she told me I need to redo it. I remember not doing it. I remember thinking to myself, I'm not redoing this project. <laughs> Even in fourth and fifth grade, I remember saying, I'm going to keep the F. I don't care because there was nothing wrong that I did. I remember she stopped me and in front of the whole class, I remember she said that I got the book wrong, that the report was, I was confusing them, everybody, and that we need to redo it and and repre- represent it. And what made my, and I don't remember, this is fourth or fifth grade, right? And so I don't remember how long I presented before she interjected. My memory of it, it was immediate, but I remember it was enough where I had pointed out that, pointed out the racism in the book. I had said that like the book was about a white person, was written by a white woman about a white person and a white girl and her white father who had these white savior complexes. I don't think I I was familiar with that terminology. I must have used some other words where their job and focus was to save one black man and how the book never talks about the Finch family's complicity in the racism system. I remember in my book report talking about that. I remember like KKK was referred to as a political organization and not a hate group. And when when Atticus is accused of being a radical, he compares himself to this political figure. I'm not going to remember his name at the moment, but I remember I had researched and found out that he was a white supremacist. So like Finch had compared himself, Atticus had compared himself to a white supremacist to prove he wasn't a radical. And I remember talking about how the book is published in the 60s, and it doesn't mention any of the civil unrest that is taking place in the country at that time. It doesn't talk about how what the problem is with a Black person being accused of rape and the significance of that. And the word lynch is never used mm. and the weight of that accusation. And I just, I remember when a book report ended with saying, this is more, this is not a book about racism. This is a book about white people and their ability to be kind and be moral beings. Um, and not about white people having created the whole system right? to begin with. And I didn't know this at that time, but I remember when she shut that conversation and said I had to redo it and gave me an F, I realized like I had no recourse mm-hmm. as a fourth grader. I could not go to my immigrant parents and ask them to come and advocate for me. They didn't have the skills. They didn't have the language. Right. There were no adults in the system that were would have been able to help me and I realized I think at that moment it was was there's only so much that I can do there is work they need to do like this teacher needs to develop herself to know how to support a person like me so that's like those kind of experiences happening over and over again where you realize that you there are no adults competent to care for you or to understand you or your experience to feel wrong again and and again. I think the other experience I would just point to in my life was my parents moved back and forth between Pakistan and Canada. So I never got in my up to my twenties. I never got to live in one culture long enough where I could be like even have the semblance of fitting in. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you repeatedly don't belong, don't. Although fitting in is not the same as thing as belonging, but like I'm and I'm using them synonymously at the moment. But when you repeatedly don't belong, and also when you change cultural contexts significantly, right? So in second grade, I went from using paper and fountain pens and like ballpoint ink pens in Tro- in Toronto, Canada, to moving to Pakistan, where we used a wood 
tablet with reed pens where we had to mix our ink the day of. So like technology experiences that were like vastly different and how schooling was done. Like I think like my experiences of experiencing systems that felt like they were from drastically different worlds and times has given me, I think, the context and the ingredients to realize that we have to think outside the box. We have to radically imagine different ways of being to create new systems and to create different systems. Yeah. I feel like that's what I can point to that is maybe a little bit more unique about my experience. And then I will just say is like from the beginning, I've been very introverted. I'm very thought and thinking oriented. And I would say my religious upbringing has taught me to ask why a lot. The question, why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Along with that experience in different cultures, speaking di- different religious uh, experiences, different um, linguistic experiences. So I speak about five, I can speak with various competencies, five languages. I think that helps you see, be more flexible in how you can see things can be done. Mm-hmm. So I do see that I have a an ability to imagine doing things differently than a lot of people. And in my experience working with managers and supervisors, that's an incredibly frustrating thing for them to have to manage. Yeah. Where someone below them who is brown, Muslim, for the most bulk of my life, I was also visibly Muslim, who already looks like an other challenges like they they see that as challenging versus innovative it's hard for them to put the word innovative on the feedback that i would bring to them to say like you're actually challenging can you tell me about advice you've received that's influenced the way you approach your work Mm. like when i think on the spot like this all the advice i can think of Advice that was given to me that I could see did not fit me Mm -hmm. was maybe some of the most powerful advices I got in my life. Where I got this advice from people that I respected and I looked up to and then and thought, okay, they are saying this, this must be true. I just need to try it differently. And so me trying out and trying on advice and realizing, nope, this advice is not specific to me. This can't work. This is coming from their lived experience. So for example, um, the advice of be yourself. Right. I think is the most harmful advice we give to BIPOCs. And because when we take that advice seriously, it backfires. I think the most useful advice that I ever got was from a, not a mentor, but a leader who had been my coachee for a while and I was experiencing some hardship in a workplace environment and she had said, oh, but is that your responsibility, Amina? Hmm. I remember we worked at that statement first and I had asked her, what do you mean by that? So I've learned to ask when I'm irked, that something in me is triggered and I need to work harder to be open-minded and be, mm-hmm. stay curious. I've learned to add, tell the person to expand because that usually helps me know more about what they're saying and add less of my irkness to their statement. She went into some details and I remember it stayed with me for weeks and it bugged me for weeks. And it bugged me when something bugs me that long, it's because there is a strand of truth in there mixed in with all the things that have traditionally experientially that I know have not worked and do not work um, and I can't figure out what that is but I remember like on a walk one day realizing oh my gosh I know what why is bugging me and I realized it's true when we want to do work that is systemic change work and when we can see when we're visionaries and we can see exactly what needs to change the system, it is really frustrating to see everybody move at snail pace. It's really frustrating to see people not just see that idea and be like, oh my gosh, that's the solution. Let's implement it or let's give it a try. Let's try it out and see if it actually works. And I realized like what she was saying to me was that like what surfaced for me was like, there are things that are mine to do 
Mm-hmm. And then there are things that are not mine to do. And if something is not mine to do, how much of my effort should actually go into that? Is that smart expenditure of my energy because I am one person? Right. And I feel like in my career, that was like one of the biggest breakthroughs for me was my ability to detach from what was not my individual responsibility and to not push forward that work unless everybody else is on board and putting and pulling their weight. Yeah. That makes sense. Because I think BIPUCs make that mistake is like we take on healing our businesses, our, our organizations. And that's where it's the responsibility of leadership. And we often put more in and get burnt out than leadership will put in. Yeah. Or our colleagues will put in. It's really wise. Obviously, this work is not always generative. There can be times when it's raining or discouraging. So what do you do to stay inspired, to, to recharge and to keep going and stay curious in the face of the challenges and the overwhelm? Yes, the work can be discouraging and it, it costs a lot emotionally. There's a lot of emotional, psychological labor, I would say. But for me, it's those friction points that are the most generative places, actually. Huh. The places where something is really hard to achieve or there's a lot of resistance. That is actually where I feel like the gold is. Mm-hmm. And so I am actually energized because I know that because it's really hard to crack the shell there, that is where the gold is. My energy comes from knowing that if we can get below the surface, we're going to be opened up to like immense possibilities. And so if I, for me, it's actually incredibly encouraging and energizing when I can actually identify is a source of friction. That's awesome. But you're good at this. <laughs> yeah. And this is what, really why I'm good at this. And I know that where there is the most emotional labor being put in, I know that the return is going to be huge. So like I, from experience, know that the return is going to be immense and completely worth it. So I think maybe having that lived experience, I'm grateful for having the lived experience of seeing successes mm-hmm. come out of immense energy inputs. But I get to your point, though, like when I look at the world right now and how much work these people put in, things can be discouraging. And I think I find my, I fill my cup in with connections, with building community, because it's our interconnectedness and our interdependence that is actually going to save us. And And our disconnection is what is destroying us at the moment. And so I, I make sure that I have community I'm connected with and COVID has more than doubled and tripled my ability to access community because of Zoom and virtual connection. I've made connections with people in England, in Australia that I talk to regularly, either on LinkedIn or will hop on a call. And so I think I find those very energizing to see that there are so many people who want to do good in the world and are dedicating their resources to that. I think that I find that incredibly encouraging and uplifting uh, that despite our systems, our socialization isn't complete. And that's very energizing to see that people have not been completely socialized into oppression and to replicating oppression. I think that is one of the biggest things that I see is that, that there really are a lot of folks who truly do want things to be different. They don't always know, at your point, how to do things differently. Mm -hmm. And yet they are willing to step in and try. And I think that there's not as much megaphone for that. So I I also find that to be one of the things that helps me to stay up and got to be. For folks who are listening. And again, if I may say so, this is another DEI as business as unusual. Uh, thing about Zarafa Consulting, which is my consulting gig, is that a lot of traditional DEI is focused on changing hearts and minds. I'm actually not in through Zarafa Consulting. That is not one of our objectives to change heart and minds. I believe that predominantly the bulk of people have good intentions. 
And we need to create systems that make it easy for people with good intentions to have good impact. Yeah. Yeah. That's the changing behavior. And then things can come along. So for folks that are listening and want to know more, maybe they think you would be helpful to them, their business, they want to refer you to their best friend. How do they get in touch, follow you, learn what you're up to, et cetera, et cetera? Pretty easy to be in touch with me and to follow me. So LinkedIn is where I am most active. And so you can go to LinkedIn, ring my bell, and that way you will see my posts. My posts tend to be a mix of heart-centered DEI insights and tips and advice, as well as opportunities to work with me. And then LinkedIn, like any other space, is not always conducive to people who do DEI with integrity, I will say. Mm -hmm. And so if I ever get kicked off LinkedIn, you want to be on my email list. And so I just started an email list and we'll start a newsletter starting January of 2024, two emails a month and follow my link tree to go sign up for my newsletter. And that way, if I ever disappear from LinkedIn, you have access to me. Send me a DM on LinkedIn uh, to say you're interested and I'll be in touch. That's the fastest way. You could also email me and I can give you my email address. But those are some of the ways that you can be in touch with me. And then once I have my website up and running, that'll be on Linktree as well, or we announced in my newsletter. And so you'll find out if you are already following me and on my emailing list. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. And I really appreciate you joining us. And I hope that folks do reach out and follow you. I know I've learned a lot from following you and attending your work. And I look forward to learning more. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. And I hope that this met your um your checklist or your needs for a kickoff for 2024. More than exceeded it. I hope you enjoy the show. I love making it. If you did enjoy it, consider hopping over to the review portion of the platform you listen on and letting other people know about it or share the episode or the entire show with a friend or subscribe to the show definitely reach out, get on my newsletter, follow me on social media, and let me know what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd like to see in the future. While we love our guests, appearance on the Business as Unusual podcast or any Bicurian consulting production is for information purposes only and is not to be considered an endorsement of their business, business practices, or character. Please properly vet anyone you find through this podcast and generally before you do any business with them. Thank you for listening.